Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday morning, busy week. Now I'm starting the um, history lectures on Saturday nights. Uh, we just did one. It's actually good for me, for those of you who are interested, if you're the, uh, what shall I say, video types, if you go onto uh, the internet to my YouTube channel, I guess, which is called Jewish History with Rabbi Dr. David Katz. I mean, you know, that's an obvious one. Jewish History with Rabbi Dr. David Katz. And uh, to, if you hit on subscribe, it's good for me. I don't know. That's what my team told me. And I don't 100% understand it, but I kind of understand it. Whatever the numbers go up, it's going to be good. So if you have a chance, do that. Um, today's talk is uh, being sponsored. I have a sponsor. I don't have one for the Parsha this week. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I have one for today. Uh, Baruch Hashem. And uh, from uh, somebody from Lakewood who wants to remain anonymous. And... Uh, I honor that, and uh, we're grateful. Um, somebody, who, he and his wife have been listening for a long time. They just said they wanted to do this, but they don't want any attribution. So, um, thank you all. Uh, I wasn't sure what to do this week, and then I saw the Marashtam, and I said I'm going to do that. Yesterday was the art site. On the other hand, I was a little bit hesitant, thinking about it, you know. I mainly think about this when I'm driving from place to place. Who's got time other than that? Uh, because Marashtam is a very large subject, very complex. And uh, I haven't kept up with the latest scholarship. I don't know, maybe there isn't any, you know, in the last uh, 25 years, 30 years. But the old stuff is is is, is uh, well known, at least to some people. Uh, let me get to the point. Uh, once again, I want to thank the sponsors. And today... We'll talk about someone from the storied past, one of the big Sephardim from the 16th century, that's the 1500s, which was really the golden age of the Sephardim. By that I mean the big, big biggies, the Shalas and Shubas guys, the biggies. There was like a galaxy of them in uh, the 1500s. It really is true. And our hero today, Rushmul de Medina, that was his name. It's a you know, Spanish name, Portuguese name actually. They call him Rashtam. Well, uh, some of you have heard him, some of you haven't. It's from the biggest. Here's somebody very interesting. So here's basically a story about someone who lived all of his life in one place. You know, I've always lived in Baltimore. So he always lived in Salonica. A number of years ago, uh, before the corona, obviously, I guess two years ago maybe, maybe it was last year, uh, I was going to do a trip to Greece. I had some people, a lady in particular, was very interested in doing a Jewish history trip to Greece. But we couldn't get enough people. It was hard to, you know, put it together. Barely. And then when Ari said, let's instead do Prague and Vienna and all that, we got a whole bunch of people. So that's what I did. So Greece remains something possibly for the future. And if we would have gone to Greece, one of the main... Um, remember, I go for Jewish history. So one of the main places I would have gone 
would be to Salonica, which is now in the country called Greece, but really has nothing to do with Greece but uh, The modern country Greece never existed before the 1800s, and the Kahila we're talking about was screwed over by the Greeks when the Greeks conquered it in 1912. So we talk about Salonika. I mean, to go there, you have to fly to the country of Greece and visit it there today. And there was a terrible Holocaust there to kill just about everybody. And the Greeks were a bunch of Amzerim and all that. Um, and helped the Germans and whatever. But uh, And I guess you have the remnants of what was once uh, a thriving Jewish city. But I want to take you back to a time when Salonika may have been the most important Jewish city, or certainly the top two or three. Uh, now, most people don't even know what I'm talking about. There's a place in the Balkans, what you, in Sicily. In other words, what is today Greece, not far from Turkey, on the European side. And uh, it's a famous port city, you know, I guess on the Mediterranean, and uh, with a natural harbor. And this happens to be a place... For whatever reason, as we'll see, the Jews immigrated to starting like in the 11-1200s. I mean, a long time ago. And uh, it's a good port. So that's a place, excuse me, that would attract Jews because you can do business there. And all kind of Jews. I mean, this is really, what I'm telling you, it's not really known. When there were persecutions by Christians or whatever, as there were, in the 1100s, the 1200s, the 1300s, the 1400s, in Vatican, in uh, France, in Germany, in Italy, even Hungary, places like that, when there were Xeris, Jews either died or ran away. One of the places they ran away to, where, they, where, where there was no persecution, was this uh, city, uh, Salonika. If I can use a mushal, it's like Shanghai was in World War II. You understand? And uh, uh, the Jews were allowed in there because they helped the economy. And uh, that became a really strong Jewish community. And everything I just said was, so you had Ashkenaz, you had every type of Jew. Romanian, which Romania, which means the Greek Jews. This type of Jew, that type of Jew, Italian Jews, various sorts. And this uh, Jewish community, or set of communities, was powerfully reinforced after 1492, when the Jews had to leave Spain and later had to leave Portugal. So the, in 1492, this fired him to Orim. I've said this a thousand times. These are the people who gave up everything. For Yiddishkeit, uh, they moved to the Turkish Empire, uh, which is what I'm going to talk about right now, the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And Salonika was like one of the main cities. Uh, at the time, I know you don't know your history and geography, but you know where Turkey is today. So at the time I'm talking about the empire of the Turks, of one particular type of Turks, the Ottoman Turks, included um, the country of Turkey today, plus a bunch of countries in the Europe next to it, in the Balkans. What you and I today call Greece, Bulgaria, uh, Serbia, Macedonia, Albania, maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about, but, you know, take the trouble to Google it on a map, you'll see in a second. This was the acre part of the Turkish Empire, and later on, in the 1500s, the Turks tremendously expanded in every direction. Those they went through a conquest uh, period and they conquered the Middle East, which they hadn't had before, and the Khalik of North Africa, like Egypt and so forth, and Saudi Arabia and Iraq. And they even went deeper into Europe and conquered Hungary. Uh, so, you know, the Turks were on a roll. 
our hero, Roshmul de Medina, lived all of his life in this empire and pretty much in one city. Now, when I say the Turks, the Turks are a race, you know, an ethnic group. There's all kind of Turks. You get there's this type and that type and that type. Central Asia is full of these Turks. They call them Turanianism, Pan-Turanianism. And uh, it's a certain group. One shaved of this, called the, from a guy named Osman, Ottomans, back in the 1200s, I guess, late 1100s, 1200s, uh, he organized a very small but, but uh, potent military force, and he started expanding like Pac-Man, little by little. And they created a, a dynasty which was very militarily oriented. Always everything was on to, to, fix, to increase the military efficiency. And they created, by the standards of the Middle Ages and the immediate post-Middle Ages, a very efficient military machine. And that is how they conquered everything, right? That is how they conquered everything. Um, and so the bottom line is that if you're Jewish and you live in the, let's say, 1300s, the 1400s, 1500s, and 1600s, and 1700s, you live in that part of the world, you're under the Turks, but there's a plus and a minus. These are Muslims, and so they treat the Jews like the third-class citizens. No, not really. They treat the Jews like second-class citizens. To the Turks, the areas that they ruled included a ton of people that weren't Turkish. Matter of fact, the whole claim to fame of the Turks is they conquered one-third of Europe, which means they ruled a lot of Christians and various ethnicities. They had the, under them the Greeks and the Hungarians and the Romanians and all that sort of junk. So the Jews are part of the many groups that they rule. And the reason I'm giving you this is to say that the Jews who lived in what we call the Turkish Empire, first of all, lived in a large place which was expanding, and second of all, lived in a place where they weren't treated too bad. There's no respect for the Jews, but in the classic Islamic uh, fashion, uh, the Jews were allowed to have uh, autonomous coercive communities. They were kind of ruled themselves, subject to the Turkish, uh, you know, government could do whatever they want any time. The ruler was the sultan, and sultan was absolute dictator. You understand? He mamish owned and ruled everybody. You couldn't do anything without him. But uh, as long as you listen to those rules, the intelligent stewardship of his own economic affairs led him to have what we would call today a fairly liberal, liberal economic attitude. And where I'm going with all this is, if you're Jewish and you live in the Turkish Empire, you can trade with any other part of the empire without any impediments. There was no such thing like in Europe. A Jew can't go into this business. A Jew can't go into this area, that area. A Jew could go at almost anywhere, not in Arabia, but almost anywhere in the Turkish Empire, and buy and sell whatever you want. So it was a golden age for merchants of a certain sort. You get what I'm saying? Merchants. And this is what the Jews did when the times were good. For various reasons later on, the times were bad, but I'm talking about the 1500s when the times were relatively good. And so the Turkish Empire filled up with Jews of every sort. Ashkenaz fired Italian, you know, uh, Romania, all, all kinds. And like in America, each group came to wherever they came and set up its own little show. You know, that's what it was 100 years ago in America. You'd have a show in Baltimore or any city in America. You know, the people from the Chernigover show set up the Chernigover Kehilla, the people from the Kolk set up the Kolker Kehilla. And you had hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of these in North America uh, of people 
food. You know, it's, it's just a natural tendency that you make a show of people from your area back in the old country, and you keep up to Minhagim, and the dialect, and the mobsters, and the sitters, and all that kind of stuff, uh, even though you find yourself in new areas. This is how it went. Okay, this, this is how it went. Now, one of the cities, which became a big center of the Jews, was Salonikov. Ad Kedekach, then in the 1500s, in the period I'm talking about, of our hero, the Jews were rove of the population of the city. And the Jews had a lot of middle class and upper class. Well, they had plenty of poor, middle class and upper class. And since the Jews had, uh, what I'm describing is they had economic freedom, so uh, the Jewish business like was booming. So our hero will spend his life in Salonika, but that's like living in New York. And from a Jewish perspective, it's perhaps even more interesting because it's not as big as New York, but you have every block is another Kahila. Here's the Italian show. Here's, you know, it's like Brooklyn. You know, here, here's a Syrian place. Here's a Lubavitch place. Here's a Satmar place. Here's the Yeshivish place. Here's a this, here's a that. It's, but but, but the, the, the differences are more sharply etched even than you have in America. And especially when the Sephardim showed up, so, uh, you know, you had two types. You had the uh, Sephardim Tahurim, who keep up the Ladino, you understand? Now, they will come to Salonika and places like that, these are the real Sephardim over here. And uh, they'll talk Yiddish. Their Yiddish is, is the Spanish, the Castilian, with a lot of Hebrew words in it. The same way Yiddish is German with a lot of Hebrew words in it, and Gemara words. Uh, you'll have later on other Spanish Jews coming who are Sephardim Tamim. These are the Moranos who escape and, and, and want to live a life of Judaism. And many of them come through Salonika. And these guys don't speak Yiddish anymore, uh, any more than a BT today would learn Yiddish. You know, how would he know it at home? Just like today, a BT would talk English, so these guys would come speaking Spanish and Portuguese. So you can have one shoal of people who are Yiddish, of Ladino speakers, another shoal of people who are Spanish and Portuguese, Spanish speakers, another Portuguese speaker, then Italians, then you have Ashkenazim, we're talking Yiddish still, and old Yiddish because they've been there since the 1300s, and it's a, it's a polygon, but it's a glorious polygon. It could be, anyway, it could be, or not. Uh, and it, so Salonika is a place with hundreds of shoals and shtibbles. Each one have a different ethnicity type thing. And of course, these shtibbles and shoals are always cell-dividing like Jews do over machlekes. Because, you know, that's how it is everywhere throughout history. And Salonika is a perfect example. You have a Spanish shoal, now you got two. <laughs> right? Because this, this, this guy didn't get an aliyah. Right? That guy, they, they wasn't called up to hold the Torah by Kol Nidre, you know. That kind of business. You, you didn't make me a chassan Torah, you know. Uh, hell with you, I'm making my own uh, synagogue. You know, a lot of that kind of stuff. And um, this is the wild and crazy world in which our hero lived. Um, Shmuel de Medina. And it's it's not a dramatic life in, in the sense of adventurous, but he lived in a very interesting time. The Jews from this place are trading as merchants all over the place. You know, if you're in Salonika, you trade with Aleppo or with Egypt and with India and with Europe, especially with Venice and so on and so forth. And these different Jewish communities had to somehow or other work out their relations between themselves and between the government. Because as far as the government is concerned, the Jews pay one lump sum of taxes. You get it? So 
how do you divide that up among the taxes? They're compelled. It's not like America. In America, as we see now in the corona, if a show doesn't want to listen, they do it their own doggone thing, they can do it. You can't make them, uh, you know, follow what the Vada Rabbanim says or the Vada Ha'ir or something like that. We don't even have such things, really. Uh, in those days, you had to have it in order to pay the taxes to the imperial government. And so the Jews, wherever they went, you can op- operate 100 steeples, and they did. Those steeples have to at least get together for the purposes of figuring out the tax burden. Let's say there's 25,000 Jews in the town. The government wants 25 million bucks. That's a million bucks per thousand people. How do you how do you do that? You know, or something like that, right? How do you do that? And it can't be, well, you know, the Italians will pay and the Portuguese are not going to pay or the Polish will pay and the Germans won't pay. You know, it's, it, everybody's got to kick in. So that forced the people to have like a a Kahila structure, and be, let me say this, in, after 1492, in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s especially, the Sephardim, when they moved there, they kind of took over Rome of the Kahila. It's a classic place where the Sephardi imperialism happened, and a lot of it is chronicled in the Shalos and Shubas of our hero, uh, Shmuel de Medina, the Rashtam, Mashtam. Because uh, the Sephardim, when they came, to the Orient, to the Turkish Empire, to the Middle East, as we say today, and to the Balkans. So they basically said, uh, step aside, guys, we're the Sephardim, we're the biggest Talmud come around, and second of all, we're superior to everybody because we are Sephardim, and uh, everything you're doing here is wrong, and here's how you should do it. And the, the locals didn't like it, and big fights emerged of a ritual nature and of a social nature, but the Sephardim won. It took a long time to Sephardim won. And by the time you get to the 100 years after 1492, in my estimation, the Sephardim nuked all their opposition, almost, and uh, they Sephardiized everybody, which is just an interesting uh, process. And uh, and I'm not doing justice to a very complex topic, but if you go through the Shalos and Shurus Marashtam, which are voluminous, it's one of the reasons he's famous. That's the reason he's famous, because of his collection of Shalos and Shubas which are classic de la classic, um, you see all these fights between this kill, the kill of Lisbon versus the kill of Evora. They're both Portuguese, you know. And uh, basically, the Sephardim said, I guess, what are you following your local men hugging for this stupid? Here's our stuff. It's much better. We have, you know, famous people who did it. And our uh, davening is more tzach and uh, more melissa, uh, more nice and very direct. Uh, our prayers are better, our uh, tefillot, uh, you know, the, what did the PU team are better, and all this kind of stuff. Even, even Marstam says, listen, I think everybody should follow their own minute, but, <laughs> but, you got it, this is what he said, you got to admit, the Sephardi stuff is superior. <laughs> this is how you go. Very much like a Vadiosev in that regard, you know, have an objective opinion. Now, to get to the personal, although I'll be switching back and forth, I'm sure we're going to talk about over here. Um, our hero was born in Salonika and died there. He had, uh, at the time he came there, he was born in like 1506, I think, something like that, the first decade. So in other words, 12 years, 15 years after the Jews were kicked out of Egypt, uh, kicked out of Spain. Now, I, I repeat, these are the Frumi Jews, the ones who left Spain, by definition, uh, Sfarim Tahorim. They're the ones who gave up everything, property, uh, uh, real estate, businesses, for Yiddishkeit, and suffered, suffered. Uh, 
Now, the ones I'm talking about lost everything in, back in, 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 um, in leaving Spain. And many of them were totally screwed over by pirates and other people who took advantage of them on the ships as they left the country. There are many bad stories about Jews who were killed or fleeced or the women raped and all their money was taken and, and they starved to death and died from thirst. Many horrible stories you can find in that, the book of Shevi Yehuda, which is the classic description of this kind of stuff. And then they would come, let's say, for example, those who made it, the ship would come to Salonika, and these guys would get off the, the, the boat. Over and over again this happened. And uh, they're starving, and the Jewish community there would give them a stickle tzedakah, you know, a little bit. Maybe just enough, you know, bread and water. And, you know, they didn't have unlimited funds. But, you know, listen closely. The guys I'm talking about who fled Spain included all, you know, all kinds of types. You had losers. You also had winners. So here's a guy, for example, just trying to give you a, 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 an understanding of the process here. Let's say there's a guy who was a successful business person, businessman in Spain. But he's a from Jew. From enough that he gave up the business and he now lost everything and comes penniless with his family to uh, Salonico. But he still got the smarts, get it? He still knows business. Let's say, for example, he was in the lumber business or the spice business. I'm just making up, right? Or the leather business. See, he still has his Yadias when he needs a stickle capital, correct? Uh, sooner or later, he would be able to round up the capital, you know, through business purposes. Go to a guy and say, listen, I have experience. Uh, you, you have money to lend. Uh, here's my business plan. Here are the numbers. And it was the truth. And once he had put a little bit of capital, he could start engaging in trade. And since he knows the business, and now he's in Salonika, so he's in a very good port city for international trade. Let's say back in Spain, he used to deal with Venice, for example, which often happened. Well, he can now reestablishes his, uh, you know, client base with Venice or wherever, or Alexandria. So what I'm trying to say it's like this. If you have business skills, it's something you can take with you even if you're naked. And again and again, these fired him. Would, um, would do just that. So basically, the guy arrives broke. Give me 10 years and the guy's already rich. You follow? Or well off or rich. Uh, this is just an interesting story. And this happened over in, in, the, in the early 15 or 16 or 20, you know, all through the way. Now, in the case of our hero, he didn't have that kind of life. He was a frummy. His father died when he was young, which is often the case that he's good His mother clearly must have been a barrier. And she said, you know, I want my son to become a girl. Uh, a Sephardi lady, obviously. And um, Salonika was a place of yeshivas. Now, this is all Sephardic. Get it? Sephardi style. They have their way of doing it. And they even had, in the time I'm talking about, their own version of Pilpul, which was called Iyun. This was like the golden age of that. If you, in Spain already, in the previous century... In the 1400s, they, uh, Spanish Jews had evolved their own yeshiva culture, distinct from what had been beforehand. This is something that's not so well known. Uh, and if you're interested at all, you can look at the uh, little booklet called Darke HaTalma, Darke Gemara, from Yitzhak Kampanton, who was called the last Gaon of Castile, Castile being the central part of Spain. And uh, it's, it's amazing, it's a manual, of how to do the pilpul of the old style that I've spoken about before. I don't want to go to 
Arichus anymore, otherwise it'll take 10 hours. Uh, just for your information, they recently republished the uh, Darke Hagamara with Nakudos and everything like that. Very, a very nice addition. And with little, you know, there was a little paragraph, uh, uh, Sikumim on the side. Very, very nice uh, job uh, that I got. Thanks to this farm chatter, told me about it. And uh, it's really, I recommend it. If you, but it's a certain style. I mean, it's not the way we learn today. And uh, that means that they were doing their own, you know, they're doing, this is the old system, you know, first learned the Gemara, and then only after you finish learning the Gemara, and then you learn Rashi. <laughs> I'm serious, you get it? And now after, only after you finish that learning the Gemara and the Bim Rashi, then you learn Tosas. And then you go back and forth and hawk with that stuff. It's a different way of learning. But um, Salonika is where this stuff came, you know, to be really used for heavily for 100, 150 years. And so there was a definite yeshiva culture. And yeshivas were flourishing for a while. And there was money to support them. And none of this is Ashkenazi whatsoever. This has nothing to do with Poland, Germany, its own business. It's a whole world that many of us do not know about because we're Ashkenazi-centric. And uh, it was a glorious era of Torah culture, um, maybe the maybe the most uh, during the 1500s. It's just very interesting. So Salonika was a hot place in terms of lumbus during the 1500s, and our hero was a major piece of that. So when he was young, if he's born in 1506 or whatever, 158, so uh, that means he's growing up as a boy. Eh, around 1520, right, you know, that's when he's 14, it's in the 1520s, uh, he learns, he has two Rebbe's, both of whom were amazing, Sephardic Gedolim, but very different nature, <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting, uh, you have two Rebbe Muvots, but they're very different, uh, one was Rebbe Yosef Taitzak, now uh, Taititzak, which uh, is a mishpacha that was very big in Salonika, and uh, among them, they taught Riyosev Karo. This is a family of Talmudic Chachamim who brought the stuff from Spain. I mentioned that in Spain, there was a change in the style of learning, and there was a Hizchazkus and a, 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 what's a, a yeshivaism movement in Spain just before 1492. And so they produced a galaxy of big, big Talmudic Chachamim. And these are the guys who, who left Spain, and therefore when they moved to other communities after they kicked out of Spain... They asserted the Sephardism successfully because they said, listen, we're the guys that really know how to learn and we're the real gadolim around here, which was true. And therefore, they rocked. You understand? They rocked. And so one of our, uh, one of his rabbis was Rabbi Yosef Taisak. I think he taught Rabbi Yosef Kar also, I believe. And um, he had his big yeshiva there. He's a makobo, a chassid, you know, a farfrumter, you know what I mean? In other words, they, they doesn't sleep on a bed, and you know, uh, bread and water. You know, all that. that, that a, a real, you know, a pietist on the, on the one hand, and his other rebbe, and he was attached to both of them, was the Marobach, Rebbe Ben Chabib. I think I did a podcast on him. He's the guy that that uh, uh, was dissenting against the smicha. In other words, the smicha controversy of Sfat that I think many of you may have heard of. It took place in the 1530s, at this time, in Svat, among these Svarty biggie types. That's what exactly what it was. It was a whole big fight among rabbis who were born or, 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 or you know, in Spain or 
recently afterwards, and where the big scholars, the big Talmudic Chacham at that time, and they were arguing over whether or not you could revive the Sanhedrin. And the person that fought against it and prevented it from happening was the Ralbach. This is what his claim to fame. Now, not, not really. The Ralbach has Shalosens with the Ralbach, which are a very heavy set of Lomdash Shalosens uh, on, 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 on Shemitah, on everything. His, and he was the Rebbe also of our hero. The Ralbach was super litvish, if, I can, <laughs> if I'm allowed to use that term. Gemara, post game, that's it. You know, no Kabbalah, no nothing. It's a straight Lomdash. You know, I don't have any time to be a chassid. I'm learning. <laughs> you know, no time for shtick. It's pure lambdas. And you see that both of these influences uh, played out in the character of the uh, Marashtam, our hero. But clearly the second Rebbe had more of, in my opinion, the second Rebbe seems to have had more of an influence. You understand? Because the Marashtam is not going to grow up to be a Makobol or anything like that whatsoever. It's going to be a very glot straightforward, lomdash cup, svar yeshara, n- nothing but learning, you understand, and halacha, and halacha. Uh, that's, it's, 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 it's interesting, you know, the the teacher's influences that play out, and the way they play out, or do not, in the life of a student. Um, what can I tell them? He learned on these two, he stayed in the town, he eventually became a dayan, uh, people saw early on in life, you know, when he was like in his 20s, that the guy knows halacha. You know what I mean? There's always that type. There's a guy in yeshiva who's good in halacha. Um, he's talented at it. And he clearly uh, developed a very uh, honest character. You understand? Uh, this is an age when the Jews ruled themselves. So in other words, this is because it's the Turkish Empire in the 1500s. There was a great deal of Jewish autonomy Consequently, there was a lot of chesh and mishpanol. That's my point. If you look at the chubas that are of, of the our hero of Marshtam, it's the opposite of many shalos and chubas, especially today. Today, the orachaim part is big in the yordea, and the chesh and mishpat is relatively small. By him, the orachaim is tiny, and the chesh and mishpat is, is humongous, because there really was a basin over there, a set of basins, and they dealt with real business all the time. Uh, and there's a thousand, ten thousand business shilas that came up because here you have a community. It's it's a very interesting, a community that is involved in every kind of commercial enterprise, every kind of trade, uh, manufacturers. Salonica became not only a place of tremendous merchants, you know, trading with ships going in and out. You had that. In addition to that, the, and and by the way, it was all under the Jews, right? Salonika being a place all under the Jews. Business did not operate on Saturdays and Jewish holidays. This is famous. This was true until the Greeks took over in 1912. And this was a W that the, 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 the stores and everything were closed on Saturday. Right? Because so much of the community was uh, was Jewish. And even the workers, you understand, uh, were Jewish. Uh, in other words, it wasn't just a few Jewish merchants and then, you know, bunch of Geisha workers, as you had in many other places. The workers themselves are Jewish. The main inhabitants of the city were the Jews, the Greeks, and the Turks. The Jews and the Greeks hate each other. The Greeks have always been extremely anti-Semitic. They always try and screw over the Jews. Uh, this was the big threat. The Turks were the rulers. And, uh, you know, the Jews and the Turks got along, kaka kaka. 
what you have to understand is that from the point of view of the Turkish Empire, especially in Europe, there was a ton of Christians who were ruled by the Turkish Empire. And these Christians hated the fact, for understandable reasons, that they were ruled by the Turks who were infidels. And the Christians were always trying to think and dream, how can they rebel? So if you're the Turkish rulers, you know that the Christian population is basically not trustworthy. But these Jews are trustworthy. No, they are not a problem, because the Jews don't want the Christians to take over. The Christians will screw over the Jews. And so from the point of view of the imperial government, the Jews are like a plus. They're a population, they're wusses, you understand? They, they uh, don't fight, and they're uh, cowards, and that kind of thing. They're contemptible in, in those areas. But from the political perspective, the Jews are pro-Turkey. You understand? Pro-Sultan. And uh, for that reason, the Jews were given a lot of these freedoms, and uh, were treated the same way as Christians were. Meaning, the Muslim religion is the top one, but under the Muslim religion, the Jews and the, and, and the Christians are the same. Which, for the Jews, was an upgrade. For Jews, was an upgrade. Now, uh, Salonika, therefore, had all merchants. They also had industry. A lot of Jews, what shall I say, the, the, in Salonika, they created a... Uh, uh, the... Uh, Clothing industry, you know what I mean? The clothing industry. The, uh, the what do you call it? Uh, textiles, that's it. Uh, I don't want to go to whole Rikish. You know, there's a book out. This is a complex subject. And many, many years ago, I mean decades ago, I had a student in high school, and his father was a, a YU guy who I think was raised in a conservative shoal in Philly, if I remember correctly can't believe I remember this. And he gave me a book long ago by the rabbi of his show, Morris Goodblatt, whose son later on taught at Maryland before I was there, at University of Maryland. And uh, Morris Goodblatt was a conservative rabbi. Long ago, there was a small number of conservative rabbis. I mean, I'm talking about in the 30s, 40s, 50s, those years, who... Uh, you know, had uh, scholarly ambitions, let's put it that way. And uh, and what I'm about to say is a good thing, not a bad thing. And not because most of them didn't know anything, but there were a few, and they would be encouraged by their professors. You're a rabbi of a large synagogue, but if you want to do something for a scholarship, pick a certain famous rabbi and just study all of his shouts and shuvas or something like that, and then put it out in English meaning a, a sikum. Uh, and there were like, I would say a dozen of those. I remember there was a rabbi in Baltimore who did the Radbaz. Uh, if he did it, I mean, I, actually, in the end, I don't think he did the research, but it doesn't matter. And so, because of the life and times of David Abizimra. So there was this rabbi, a considered rabbi, Goodblatt, who in 1952 made a book called uh, Jewish Life in Turkey in the 16th Century as Reflected in uh, the response of Samuel Dominion about the Marshdam, and what you talk about the the conditions in in Salonika and in the basin, and it's a certain old, very old-fashioned way of doing Jewish history. It wasn't bad. I, and to be perfectly honest, he gave it to me as a gift. Oh, many, many, many years ago, decades ago, and I put it on the shelf and only looked at it once in a blue moon. And naturally, um, somebody borrowed it, and I've never seen it since. And I'm telling you this for a reason. And uh, uh, 
And it was, I don't, I don't ask me why, about a year ago, it came into my head, whatever happened to my book on the Marsdom, and since now it's the computer age, so I went online, and I saw you can order it uh, from somewhere, and uh, Ari Elbum was nice enough to get it, you know, it's like these reprinting things, and I got it, I would say, a few months ago, it was on my shelf until today, I was thinking of doing Marsdom, I pulled it, it's not so bad, it's not bad, if you... If you're at all interested in the subject, and you've got the patience to read this old-fashioned way of doing history in which you line up sociological and economic uh, chapters, uh, it ain't bad. Uh, and if so if you look there, you see the Jews, um, as they say, control the economy, basically. And what's the reason I'm telling you this is, so if you have a combination where the Jews run the economy, Plus, the Jews are all from. I don't like to use that word, but I'm going to use that word because by that I mean that 90% of the time you'll take your cases to Basin. So that means you had to have a competent Basin to adjudicate business matters. Do you get what I'm saying? You can't have, like we have nowadays in America, a Balagan Afkaris. You go to a Basin, you don't know if they'll go by the contract that you wrote up with the other guy. They'll just declare, no, 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 we're going to do it by Jewish law, even though that's not what the lawyers wrote up. They're going to bring in some weird svara from some uh, safer that wasn't known to either of the two parties at the time they engaged in this contract. You know, so today it's a screwball situation. It's a problem. Everybody knows the number one problem with Orthodox Jews in America is the lack of a Hoshim system of any kind of uh, solidity or organization. Back in the 16th century, this was not a luxury they could afford. Back in the time of these ancestors of ours, the Sephardic ones anyway, and the Ashkenaz, they said, if you're going to have a world in which the Jews are involved in real business stuff and you want that they shouldn't go to Erkos, you better get your Koshen Mishpat Act together. You understand? And we have to make rules and regulations in which it's a level playing field and the two litigants or the two parties when they engage in business uh, adventures, the rules are clearly stated at the beginning. Everybody knows how we're playing over here and uh, so forth. So it's very, there was an impressive era, impressive century for Hoshim Mishpat This is W Dua. You understand? W Dua. And Ad Hayom, many basins that resort to these kind of Hoshim Mishpat issues go back to the Marshtam and his colleagues. This is just, uh, this, this is why he's important in Jewish history from a halachic perspective. Because he emerged as someone with a reputation for being a, a halachic expert. He also emerged as a reputation for somebody being very mellow and fair. Very mellow, you know? In other words, I wouldn't call him a tzaddik. Now, he was a tzaddik. He was. If you follow through, he was a tzaddik. But his reputation is one of normal. He knows everything. And you, and whoever adjudicates in front of him is going to get a fair deal. You find in the Jewish Mashtam, it's very interesting. They had different... Kehillas, and each Kehillah sometimes had its own basin for different things. So the Portuguese had one, and the uh, Sicilians had one, and the Italians had one different than the Sicilians, and the French have a different one, that's Ashkenaz, and then you, know, then you have the Spanish one, and then the Castilian one, the Aragonese one, and so forth. And you have all these little basin type of funny situations, and a lot of times they'll go to him, to our hero. Why, they said. I, I know exactly why, so do you. They said, you're reliable, you're normal, uh, you're fair, uh, you have a better reputation. The Ashkenaz went to him. You understand? The Ashkenaz say, 
you know, we used to have a chash of rav, but they're gone already, and our lo- the current guys are whatever they are, and we want to go to you. <laughs> want to go. As a matter of fact, he has a shaila, one of his very famous shailas, and there are literally hundreds of his famous shailas. Hundreds, I'm not exaggerating. His published uh, chubas are about a thousand chubas, 950, 960. That's a, and that, that's not all. This is the ones that he published. So uh, there's a very famous one about uh, an Ashkenaz guy. Can he have bigamy? Can he have more than one wife? Because uh, there was a, an Ashkenaz guy. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is Turkey. This is Svartyville. No. There's also an Ashkenaz community that follows Minig Ashkenaz. And nobody in any time is doing it because everybody's supposed to follow their own minig. Uh, now, polygamy and monogamy is a big difference between Ashkenaz and Sephard in the 16th century. And there's a guy who sent a shliach, I don't know how they had this screwball stuff, who sent a shliach to be Makadish somebody for a girl from another town. And then he, and, and he didn't like the, <laughs> which you can do, right? I'll pick in. You can, you can marry somebody by proxy. Turns out, the guy picked a girl to, mar- to marry his Mishalech on a proxy, and the Mishalech, there was Ashkenazi guy, didn't like her, and so he married another wife, and all hell broke loose. And, uh, and what do you do? And the Ashkenazi would go to the Shmuel de Medina, and, you know, and they say, you figure this out, because we well, you know how many qualified people. So that's weird. These Ashkenazi people, it's an Ashkenazi question. It's not a Sephardi question. It's a, it's a Cherem ben question. Cherem ben question, right? You know that. And you'd think it's the exact opposite. You should think, Sephardim, keep your nose out of this. You guys have, don't understand all this. No, I'm wrong. If it's the Marshtam, he was held in such high esteem that the Sephardim is, you figure it out. And the Marshtam even says, this is really not for me. I'm a Sephardi. You know, we don't have this thing. Uh, but in the end, and, and, and he gives a very balanced type of art, which is, look, you can only have one, uh, but you can't keep these two women hanging over there. Uh, you have to divorce the other one and give her a good settlement because now she can't marry Cohen. Uh, so you got to be fair to her, you understand? And uh, uh, in general, by the way, one of the interesting things about the Marshtam, and there are many of them, I told you, I can't do justice to this topic, but I'm just trying to acquaint you with someone who people should know more about. Maybe you'll, on your own you'll be interested in following this up. He was, uh, look, he's a Sephardi, you know, but... So, I mean, it's, it's not women's lib, but so to speak, it's a women's lib. He was the Yitzhak of the of the 16th century. All the Aguna questions went to, or I shouldn't say all, plenty of Aguna questions went to him. And uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was Matra everyone. I think. Maybe, uh, I mean, it, I can't be right, but at least the ones that are in the book, I think he was Matra everyone. And he says a lot of times, I know. You know, the, the evidence is not that great, and this and that and the other, but we got to do something pretty good. Right? And, you know, you take when you give a girl a heter to marry in those situations, you're saying, listen, you know, it's uh, it's up to you. You get it? You know, it's, we're taking a chance, but it's up to you. But to give a heter like that, and I imagine, since his enemies never brought it up, I imagine that in all those uh, 50 years or whatever that he was operating, he had like a Moshe Feinstein, you know, he had no bad incidents. Um, this is what I mean whether you get to in the 19th, except Yitzhak does not always find a heter. That's very important. I spoke about that. But I believe the Marshtam always does, which means he really felt the plight of the Aguna, which is proper. So I'm trying to tell you it's very normal 
very sympathetic. On the other hand, every Shaila is is a, is a classic. It's a succinct. And he presents the question, and he gives all the, uh, the sources, and then he explains what his opinion is. And, you know, it's never like the, my way to highway. You see he had a very good attitude, and he knows everything. And so he can, uh, you know, bring it in there. And he, and he has his system, you know, his way of, of poskening. And it's a whole world. A person could spend a lifetime or a lot of times just involved in the marshtam. You, you understand? It's like I spoke to somebody the other day. And he says, oh, I, I'm totally into the Nodabi Huda. I hear that. That's a whole department by itself. So the marshtam is like that. It's a whole department um, by itself. So here's somebody who had this uh, huge reputation. And... He has to run a basin, and I think they had a system of little basins and one biggie. I believe that's how they worked it out. In general, in Salonika and in other cities, the 1500s was when they little by little worked it out. The natural Sephardi tendency is to centralize. And first you start with a small, bunch of small shoals, but eventually you somehow or other put it together to a vado ear, and then there's one central basin with Rabbanan from different Edot represented on the basin, and then the basin then starts to make taconas. You had to have taconas and things like this in a place like Salonika, because how are you going to run this business? I'm telling you, the Jews had amazing commercial enterprises. Uh, they ran whole areas of the economy, and the Turks had no problem with it, because this produces taxes, produces revenue. The Turks had no problem with it. Uh, if somebody wanted to do, and I believe historians have, an economic history of the Marashtam, you see that they were trading. I don't want to bore you with the details. With every place in the Balkans and every place in the uh, Mediterranean, and how you do the uh, wool business with the farmers, and uh, you know all, all all this kind of business. Plus, since it's Jewish, it was like in Poland. Every house was a every house was like a stickle flea market. You know what I mean? Uh, wherever you went in Salonika, uh, look, they didn't know about hygiene and that kind of stuff. Every house. Somebody has, you know, uh, it's like we say in America today, you have a home business. She's doing shakles in the house. She's doing maternity dress in the house. She's doing, uh, you know, uh, selling this, jewelry in the house and all that. That's what everybody's doing because Jews are always hawking and uh, everything's always overcrowded. And uh, many times they'll, they'll set up like a, a, a tiny factory in the house to do different parts of the textile business and all the rest of it. All of which led to a lot of overcrowding and therefore a lot of magafis. Uh One thing you can read about interesting in the in the Marashtam, uh, if you're interested in that, is the corona epidemics that hit all the time in the 16th century Salonika. It's not corona, but all kind of magafis. People knew nothing in those days of the hygiene. Oh my God. There was no bathrooms. So everybody just dumped all the waste out uh, in their backyard or the yard, which was on the side of the house over there. They had no idea to bringing the flies and bringing terrible magafas. Second of all, I'm just telling you how things were in the old days. Second of all, if you have a city in which there's a lot of trade, so watch this. Here comes in a ship from, uh, what do you call it, Egypt. Now here comes in a ship from India. Now here comes in a ship from, uh, you know, I don't know where, Arabia. Well, guess what? Not only do the sailors get off the ship, and not only do this merchandise get off the ship, but rats and mice and cats and dogs and junk like that that jumped on the ship in India are getting over here. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to spread whatever disease was over there. They're going to now carry it to Salonika. Get it? And vice versa. People had no idea of this. Today, 
in a civilized country, there's all this health inspector junk that has to be at port cities, and they need to. You know this when you get off the plane from Israel or wherever they say, are you bringing any food? And this, uh, you got to do it. How the heck did the corona hit America? You know, from China, you know, the, somebody came in with, with, with who knows what, with chop suey. The, next thing you know, the, the whole country is coming down with it. This is how it travels. The reason I mention this, the city of Salonika had terrible uh, outbreaks of Magavis all through the 1500s. And our hero, his sons-in-law died in this Magavis, his sister died in that Magavis, his this died. I don't know how he survived, to tell you the truth. I think his wife died, if I remember correctly, one of the Magavis. And he had a hard time from all this kind of stuff. And one Magavis, 7,000 Jews were killed. Another Magavis, 4,000 Jews. These are large numbers. Especially from a community which was 25, 35,000. I don't know exactly how many. I know in the time of Hitler, it was like 60,000. Back in the 50 Jews, back in the 16th century, I imagine it was like 20, 30,000, which is humongous for that period in history. So Salonika was a hot and very fascinating place. I want you to understand you go on Shabbos, you see every type of Jew. This one's dressed in European fashion, that one's dressed in Oriental fashion. This one is dressed in Balkan fashion. So it's like going to the Kotel, you know. You go into some places in the, in Brooklyn, you know. Very different types of Jews. They're all Shema Shabbos, more or less. I say more or less. That's always the way it is in Jewish history. And there's a thousand different shtibbles, each one representing a different tradition. The Beisden, with the Marshtam was on, the different Beisdens, they're always striving to try to unite as much as possible, to centralize as much as possible, to uniformitize as much as possible the Jewish practices and the Jewish stuff in the city. Uh, the Gehillah had their share of richy riches, and they actually built, very interesting, they built, I guess you would call it a, uh, how, how should I explain this? A Torah Masura building was what I was going to say. Some communities, especially the old Chashev ones, like Vilna, and Salonika had what we would call today a federation of uh, the Jewish federation. Now, the federation was from in those days. So the federation would own land and would run things. Since it was a from, in, 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 in Vilna it was called the Tzedakah Gedayla. In um, Salonika it was called the Talmud Torah. Chevrat Talmud Torah. And the Talmud Torah, they, they, you know, people gave them uh, contributions. They owned like a, a block or two in the middle of the good neighborhood, and they built a huge building. And that building has the TA, the Beis Yaakov, and the yeshiva, and the kolo. It's got all in one building, a uh, large building. And our hero, uh, he, he had a basement session there. He, he had a yeshiva that he led. Now, I don't know how he did it. Maybe he, was, uh, maybe he was hired to teach in an existing yeshiva. Or maybe he persuaded some rich guys to give him money to run his own yeshiva. But here's somebody who gives shirim every day. So his whole life is nothing but Torah Voda. That is to say, you know, besides davening, you have to run a basin. And I'm talking about a time when the city was cooking. So the basin is a full-time business. No, it's not. You take off time every day also to give a whole bunch of shirim in the yeshiva. Every day. So he's always holding in everything. He's a real god of the old school. He's always holding in everything because he's always holding in everything. You understand? No, it's getting is never far away because every day is a get. Chalitza is never far away because, uh, you know, fairly often it's a chalitza. Uh, you know what I'm saying, right? Uh, 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 
Mecca cases, uh, Ribis cases, uh, you name it. You know, any t- anything in Ovin Ebenezer, his section of Ebenezer and Chosh Mishra is, is large. And life is what it is. That we, have our, we Jews have our good people, we have our bad people. There are a lot of scoundrels in the Shalos of Jewish Mashtam. A lot of scoundrels. I remember the guy, uh, he had an affair with Aisha Zish, and she did it also. Uh, I mean, obviously. And, you know, he's going to get in trouble. They convert to Islam. Then the hell with everybody. They can, you know, once they convert to Islam, the the the, the, the guy can take your side. You can't do anything to them. <laughs> you fall. What are you going to do to them? Uh, and boy, does he curse them out. Uh, you have every type of get situation you can imagine. You have every type of uh, kinunya and, <laughs> you know, trickery and so forth. But you also have a ton of, of regular cases that would come to any law system in the world in which the contract's not 100% clear, or the circumstances are not 100% clear. And uh, all I can tell you is, it's technical, but it's fascinating. If somebody wants to... Uh, I'll, I'm going to say something that's going to sound like I mean it funny, but I don't mean it funny. If you want to have an interesting experience, you get a hold of the Shalos Tshubas Marshdam, and just read the Shilas. Don't bother with the Tshubas. Unless you're a Lambda. You read the Shilas. Now, sometimes even the Shilas are complicated. But... They're very clear, and you really see the whole life. You understand? You see the whole life that marches before you. And you see, here's somebody that dealt with cases, and it's clear he's getting shouts from all over the Balkans. That's mainly where he got his questions. There were Jewish communities at that time throughout the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans. I'm talking about the, in the places that most of us are not familiar with, in Bulgaria, in, uh, you know, in, in, in Serbia, in um, Greece... Whatever, Yanina and Patras and Lepanto and all those type places where the Jewish communities, and of course in Constantinople and Italy and places and well, everywhere else. And he was the guy. You know, he was the most Feinstein of that time. Now, he wasn't the only one. There was a galaxy of other Gedolim who at times lived with him, and, uh, and he got along with everybody. Uh, Marie Ben Leiv, Marin Leiv, was together with him for a long time. And, uh, you know, they, they agree and disagree. But everything was, so to speak, uh, above board. You know, no hard feelings. Uh, except when there was. But uh, uh, you have... Um, I don't know. I'm just speaking here disjointedly, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you have a lot of cases in which you have fights between the rabbi and the congregation. There's a lot of that in the Marshall. And that's because you have all kinds of kahillas over there. And each one has a rabbi or not. And you also have a lot of... Uh, like today, you have a lot of people who are qualified to be rabbinim. So everybody's trying to shtup zecharayim to be a rabbi of this shul and this kehillah. A lot of times, is a politics, a guy will be a rabbi and he'll say like this, the members voted me in. And then say, the members didn't vote you in? You know, three guys voted you in. Well, they represent the members. Uh, you know, back and forth. And uh, Marashtam is always very careful to try to, I told you, the normal guy, try to preserve the dignity of the rabbi, but not to let any scoundrel in. And he had his share of fights with people who, um, how should I say, were him and didn't agree with his honest approach, and therefore they cussed him out, and, you know, people got angry over that, and it's a very uh, squalid and uh, not noble type of business, but this is part of Jewish life. It's part of Jewish life. And he's always dealing with the question, what exactly constitutes hiring a rabbi, firing a rabbi, a kill is like this, and, you know, the, 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 are they using... The customs that they had in the old country is this uh, something new? 
uh, can we make a takana to try to regulate this in the future? And you never know the whole story because in a tshuva, you get the version that was told to the Meshav. You understand the way he describes it. The response to literature is a constructed reality. This is its weakness, but it's also fascination. When you see a tshuva, you're getting not an objective report over what happened. You're getting a particular nusach of what happened. This is the way the Meshiv understands what happened. There are other ways of, of, uh, of seeing that reality. And there's, in the case I'm talking about, is a wonderful example because uh, since there were so many gedolim at that time, all these Sephardi gedolim, there's a galaxy of them, so you can see um, that the same Shiloh often appears in all the different uh, tshuva collections, and it's always a different kenech, or often a different kenech. And that's just fascinating because you you know the the way the case is presented itself is obviously going to affect what the final psaka is, and the case is not always presented in the same way. So what I'm alluding to is um, the fact that the Marshtam, in addition to, you know, like I said, giving a shear every day, or several shearim, and running a basin every day, uh, with a lot of cases, and, you know, not easy stuff, and, you know, writing it out, and then composing the tshuva, and then, in addition to the basin cases, dealing with shilas from other communities, which you got from all over the place. It's a very busy life. I told you, he didn't have any time to be from. You get it? He's too busy, like, you know, uh, he's always holding in the Indian, as it were. And um, in addition to what I just said, he was a player, okay? One of the, for historians, one, one of the interesting things about Mashtam is, you know, the big issues in which he's a player. Here, let me, uh, hold on for a second, let me fix this. Yeah, just switch it. I'll tell you what I mean when I say a player. If you're a historian or that type, you will know the Marshtam for his role in famous controversies, I think. I think. Um, because he was the big guttel in Salonika. And uh, as I said before, he had a reputation like a Moshe Feinstein, he's the man, uh, and normal and expert. And um, uh, if you... And, and uh, Salonika was like a spear point for a number of big uh, controversies that are based through the time. And I'll explain what I mean. I'll try to. Um, first of all, for anything else, the Muranos. Uh, our hero was from a Sephardi Tahor family, as, as I understand it. If I have the story correct, I think his family, if, if I understand this properly, I believe... His family is one that was in Spain. They went to Portugal, but they got out of Portugal and ran away before the Portuguese turned on a dime and made all the Jews convert to Christianity. I think that's what happened. Uh, but that means he's... Sorry, he knows these Sephardi and Spanish-Portuguese Jews. And all during his lifetime, uh, there's a constant stream, small but constant, of people escaping from the clutches of the Inquisition particularly from Portugal, uh, and coming to places like Salonica. Uh, 
without getting too technical, the Portuguese forced all the Jews, all the Jews, especially the Frumis who would run away there, to convert to Christianity. They forced them. And the thing is, but for 40 years, they did not make Inquisition. So, until 1536. And so you could possibly live a double life because there's nobody exactly checking on you. I mean, people had chashashas, if you're Christian, obviously, and the hamonam, you know, had all these reputations. That's why they call them moranos. That's like the N-word, you know. Uh, but there was nothing legal and formal about it. But in 1536, the Portuguese did introduce an inquisition, and then he started burning people. And so, from the 1530s, and particularly after 1536, a much larger group of these Portuguese Jews were, were running away. And many of them came to Salonika simply because you come to Salonika, it's a Jewish town. It's like going on to Lakewood or something, you know, in, in the sense that majority population is Jewish. That might not be a good example, but I think it's, it's a fairly good example. It's like coming to an area with a very heavy Jewish population. I repeat, more than 50% of the population was Jewish. So if you came to Salonika in the 1500s, wherever you see, you see Yehudim. Different types, Yehudim. And you see your own type. You see the Portuguese type. Now, um, therefore, Salonika is a place of, which is the headquarters of Sephardic culture of all types. Sephardi Tahor culture and Sephardi Tomei culture, the Portuguese culture. It's just interesting. And they have different shoals and they have different kahillas and different this and different that. Now, the... Uh, Christianization of the Jewish population and the Inquisition in Spain and Portugal created a veldt of halachic problems. I've spoken about this before. I think I know I did the rebush. I must have talked about it there. Um, but I'll concentrate just on Aguna questions. And I'll tell you what, exactly what I mean. There was a, a famous case with the rebush in the first wave of Moranos. Conversos in 1391, 100 years before 1492, when the Christian population just spontaneously started doing violence and forced half the Jews of Spain to convert. And aside from the tragedy of that alone, you had the following case that hit the Rivash, who himself was an escapee from the persecutions and ran away to Algeria, and it was a lady, and I'll, I'll, I'll make it very short. She and her husband were both Jewish, they got married in a church. No, they had all converted by force. They got married in a church. The priest was Jewish. All the Adam were Jewish, but they're all Christians now. And she ran away from Spain to Algeria because she wanted to come out of the closet and, and, and do Yiddishkeit. The husband no longer felt that way and he stayed behind in Spain. So, and she's like 20, 22 years old. And so she wants to move on with her life and she's a hero, right? She gave everything to run away to, 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 for Yiddishkeit. The husband, he's the jerk. He's the schmo. Now, she comes to Algeria, and the rabbis say like this, you're a uh, You're stuck, you're in a gunner, you can never get married. She said, it can't be, that's too much of a nightmare. And they go to the Rivash, and he came up with his famous ruling, in which he said, well, since the whole thing was a church marriage, it's not called Kobe Kedushin, therefore you're not married, move on. So he saved her life. So this means that if you have that situation, when I just described in which the wedding ceremony itself was a Christian service, even though you could argue differently, you could say, you know, and 
and you do have Jewish um, uh, witnesses, and everybody was anusim, meaning they were doing this not because they believed in Christianity, or, no, they weren't necessarily genuine mishamadim. There's arguments to say that she's an Ashish, but you had somebody of the caliber of the Rivashe that you can disregard it. And as I think many of my listeners know, this became the base of Moshe Feinstein, people like that saying reform and conservative, uh, particularly reform uh, weddings don't count. Therefore, a lot of people in America who might be Mamzerim aren't. In other words, you know, you could have a situation, what they call the NCSY situation, where here's a kid, his mother, and the boy's now becoming from, or the girl's now becoming from, from the NCSY or some similar situation, could be Lubavitch. And um, if you look around, the mother, and maybe the mother's now becoming Shema Shabbos, and she's on her second husband. And uh, what's shot? She was married before, and then she got divorced, now she married another guy. But she never got a get. Because they're a form. Never got a get. And so, uh, technically speaking, she should be HSH. But your emotionally you to say, well, you know, Bidiyevid, you'll say that the reform ceremony didn't count, and therefore she's not married technically to the first guy, and so, so she's not a, so the kid's not a momser, and you kind of saved the kid's life. It's all based on this rivash type stuff. That's good when it works, okay? In other words, in the case I just described, there's only Jewish ceremony. Uh, this, what I call rivash scenario, happened again and again. But that at least is doable. So all during the 1400s and the 1500s, when they have these Murano-type situations that somebody would run away and come to another place, if it's what I just described, if it's a woman, so they would uh, generally, not always, but generally take that kind of attitude. Let me put it this way. The Rivash is somebody you can be soymach on. It was a galosh of a gadolum. Fine. But what about when it doesn't work? By the, by the time you get to the 1500s, life is so uh, complicated and interesting. I told you, the, these tubas are... Or each one's a movie. Each one's a miniseries. Every, every, I'm not exaggerating. And so you had lots and lots of these situations with not a good ending, meaning, uh, uh, you know, here's, uh, you're in Salonica, and it's 1550, and here's a girl, and she ran away from Portugal. Same story. And she ran away, and she was married to a Jewish guy in Murano like herself. And now she lives in Salonica, and, she wants, and she's 25 years old, and she wants to move on. And the husband, he's a schmo. He's decided to become and stay a Catholic back in Portugal. But they were married. You say like this, well, the Christian marriage doesn't count. Yeah, but here, they had both been Muranos. So they also had Chupa Kedushin of some kind, secretly. You get it? They had Chupa Kedushin. So then, uh-oh, you can't say, well, it's a Christian ceremony. They're married. So here's a girl who landed in Salonika. And uh, she is married up Din, And the husband is now a Catholic, he ain't given no get. Uh, now, by the way, believe it or not, they endeavored, and again, I told you, even though you think I'm saying this to be witty, this is mommy, she can make 10 movies, 20 movies of this sort of thing. There were attempts, noble attempts, to send somebody secretly back to Portugal and talk to the guy and maybe bribe him to agree to give a get and all this kind of stuff, and sometimes these guys themselves were caught and burned at the stake by the Inquisition. You know, it is a, a Scarlet Pimpernel type uh, movie series. Uh, but generally speaking, she's up the creek. Because there's no out, as I described before in the Rivash. This was the Matthias that happened again and again. And Salonika was like the, the main place where these people would run away to, one of the main places. 
because I said before, you're going to a city that's all Jewish or rove Jewish. And so what does the basin do? Now, the basin could say, yes, tough luck, baby, you know. That's it. Screwed is screwed. That's it. Um, they didn't. So, and, and some took that position. But the Gedolim, Mari uh, Taitzak, and especially our hero, Marshtam, um, they couldn't, they couldn't live with this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You have a situation, irresistible force versus a movable object. It can't be, you know, that this is the result. She's the hero. She's the from one. And you tell me she's in trouble for the rest of her life. And so what they said was like this. We find ourselves compelled to revisit the sugya of once a Jew, always a Jew. You and I always say like this. Once you're Jewish, you're Jewish. A Jew cannot convert. Right? Jew cannot convert. I mean, you can go through the motions. It's possible today in the year 2020. It's a free country in America if somebody wishes to. They can go to a church and I'm converting. Or to a mosque, whatever. And I did it. But the halacha doesn't recognize that. Once a Jew, always a Jew. Where do you get that from? You know what I'm saying? Necessity forced them to revisit that. Where's that come from? That's from the Gemara that says, Yisrael off Bishachot to Yisrael who? Where's that? Yivamis somewhere? Yisrael off Bishachot Sanhedrin? Yivamis? Yisrael off Bishachot to Yisrael who? Which is originally about Ochan, the guy who stole the spoils from the city of Jericho in the book of Yeshua. And it says something like Chot Yisrael. And, uh, you know, he took the cherem, the, the forbidden uh, stuff, for which he was eventually killed, burned or whatever, stoned. And uh, so he was a Russia. But uh, he was referred to as Chot Yisrael. So Yisrael, Afal Pishachot Yisrael Ho. He didn't lose the status of being a Jew by the fact that he did a terrible sin. He was killed for it, but he didn't lose status of being a Jew. And Rashi over there says, what it means is once a Jew, always a Jew. Uh, and that and that's the basis for what we all say. So it turns out it's actually, so to speak, a weak read. You know what I mean? It's like a Harim Tulim Basaira. It's not a full discussion. And so Marshtam and others go and they analyze that Gamor very uh, carefully in such a way that it comes out that it's not true. Uh, Yisrael, she, you know, Chata or Yisrael Shehishtamed ain't a Yisrael. <laughs> if a Jew converts to another religion, then he's he's dead as far as Judaism is concerned, which is a radical uh, psak. Okay, if you become a Catholic, you're not Jewish anymore. You become a Muslim, you're not Jewish formally. You're not you're not Jewish anymore. Whoa, whoa. Now, why is he saying that? That way, this lady who ran in Salonika no longer has a husband because the husband stayed behind in Portugal. He can leave and he chooses not to leave. He's Mamush and you know, and if uh, he's not Jewish. Now, this subject has been around forever. Uh, in the early times, in the Gaonim times, you had this what's called Chalitzis Mummer. You understand? Uh, it's a famous subject. And basically, the problem over there was I'm marrying a, a, a woman, uh, but it could be that my brother, you know, we're in the Middle Ages, could be my brother or something like that is uh, converted, or may, in the future. So I'm getting married when I'm 18 years old. Over the next 20 years, it may possibly happen, I repeat, it may possibly happen that one of my siblings might convert to another religion. If something happens to me, and she ends up as a, you know, a, a Yavama, so uh, that guy's not going to give her a, a, a chalitza, and uh, she won't be able to get married. 
So this is called Chalitzis Mummer. You understand? If the, if, the, if the Yavam turns out to be a Mummer. And it's always been a problem. And what do you do about it? And this is Machlokas in the early Middle Ages, the Gonim and Rashi, and this, that, and the other. Uh, it's always been around. In the Shulchan Aruch, there's that famous um, Ramah, which quotes the Marie Brun, I think, uh, somewhere in Ebenezer, later in Ebenezer, where they said that, you know, they, they used to, uh, there was a time that they wrote what we call today the Rackman, uh, uh, you know, Kisub or whatever, the controversial stuff. It's in the Ramah. He said there was a time when Marie Bruna, who lived in the 1400s, put in, and he lived in time when things were real bad in Germany. He had a lot of mummers. And so he basically said there'll be something like that, you know. In other words, the guy says, I'm marrying you now, but if something happens to me and you fall in the hands of this mummer, then the, the marriage is ice marriage, uh, something to that effect, which they tried to use in the 20th century. There's a whole book by Eliezer Berkowitz called Yeshtanai Benesuin. The Gemara says, Ain't Yeshtanai Benesuin, Ain't Tanai Benesuin. He said, Yeah, but you see from that, Marie Bruno, Yeshtanai Benesuin. It's a whole long uh, discussion. And the Marshtam is one of the big players in that because he and his colleagues, they took on their shoulders, they were poskening this way. And for, I would say, 200 years, in the 1500s, the 1600s, even the 1700s, in the Sephardic based ins, that's what they said. Uh, they didn't like to say it, but when necessary, they weren't going to let this Jewish woman's life get ruined. Um, and uh, all during the Murano era, which was the 1500s, the 1600s, and 1700s, that's what they did. When the Murano thing was no longer there, uh, my understanding, I'm not a world's expert in Sephardi Psach, but I think my understanding is that they don't do it anymore. They stopped that long ago because the necessity wasn't there. But just goes to show you, this is a Pisic, what I just said before. You know, take the Achrayas on him, on, the, on their own shoulders. And uh, his, I, I remember, you know, it's funny. There, there, um, there's something in the air sometimes. A lot of people think the same thing at the same time. In 1932, which was what, from 1492 to 18, it, was eight, four, it must be 450 years. It was 450 years since the expulsion from Spain. So three separate guys, three historians, uh, knew how to learn. Uh, in, totally independently published books on um, the Muranos. Uh, one was Simcha Asaf wrote a, a, a very excellent article on the Anusim or something like that. And then there was this, and Cecil Roth wrote a book of the history. Man, he wasn't a Talmud but he, he knew enough. Uh, Cecil Roth wrote a book, The History of the Muranos, 1932, same year. And this German guy, Harry Zimmels, who's an excellent uh, scholar, uh, and, and knew Schausen too very well, he wrote a book in German, The Murano in the Response to the, uh, in the response to Literature, The Murano's in the Response to Literature, which is an excellent book. That really should be translated in English. It really should be translated in English. Anybody out there who's looking for a text to translate from the German to English, that's what you do. Somebody sent me a, a question this morning from Berlin, uh, whoever it was, Igor or something, uh, you want to do you want to do uh, a, a service? Go translate that uh, book from Zimmel's nineteen thirty two. It's not long, and you see over there he's got all the people like the Marshdam and the Marshdam's Talmud, one of his Talmidim of Hukim. You can just imagine a guy like this had yeshiva for decades, so he turned out a lot of big Talmud Chachamim. One is the Lecha Mishnah Avram de Boton, you know, and uh, the Lecha Mishnah has Shalos and Shuvas, 
what's it called, Lechem Rav, I think, which was recently published by the Zichron Yaakov people. And he's also passing it that way. And a whole bunch of other Sephardi did it. Now, the Ashkenaz never went that way, but the Sephardi did, because what I said before, they were one's faith. This is the real She'elot to Chubot. This is when you have a, a living human being in front of you, and then you simply can't say, well, Yikov Adin Sahar, and the hell with you. It doesn't work like that, you understand? At least, they didn't feel it could work like that. So that's one famous, very controversial issue, which was the Mashtamas associated. If not for people, if if he wasn't on the caliber that he was, which is a Godel Shabigadolim, people would say, eh, you know, what a silly psak or something like that. But you can't. People like Mashtam, Marin Lev, the uh, Lechamishna, people like these, these are uh, A A level uh, players. So he was very uh, influential in that. Which saved a ton of the of, of the uh, Marana women, right? The Conversa women. You can just understand that. Um, he also was a player in a bunch of other issues. Uh, comes to mind, uh, Gracia Mendes. Uh, I don't think I ever did a podcast to her, but I did once for my mom a. Um, video on her. I did a talk in Baltimore. She's the most famous woman in Jewish history. I wonder if it's up or not. Uh, I have to go through. I don't even know myself what they put on the website on the uh, YouTube channel. But it'll get there sooner or later if it's not there now. And uh, that was a good talk. Gracia Mendes is too long to explain now, but she was this Murano uh, lady who lived a double life and she was like a, a genius in finance. And uh, uh, she was practicing a double life. And uh, make a long story short, it's not even possible to make a long story short over here. But I'll just cut to the chase. Uh, she was married to a, a, a guy, and her sister married the other. Uh, she married one brother, the sister married another brother. These were all millionaires, and they were in the spice business, which was an unbelievably profitable enterprise in those days. And because of the Portuguese empire. So uh, then her husband died, and the other brother died. And so, the, so who runs the money? And she, she was a natural-born CEO. You know what I'm saying? She proved to be a genius in finance, which is just interesting. Her sister was married. The other brother was the opposite, a yachts. And so there developed a huge fight between her and her sister who should run them, who, who gets what, and who, you know, who, uh, the inheritance. Uh, because the two brothers died, and this brother left a daughter, and that brother left a daughter. They had no sons. So it's uh, all Yerushas of the females. And the the two sisters were fine. By the way, this all happened in the context that they were fleeing from the Pope and fleeing from the Holy Roman Emperor and fleeing from the Christians. And she was always using her money to lawyer herself out of this situation, that situation. And the sister was, like I say, a jerk and a half. And she eventually told the government of Venice, my sister's really Jewish. You know, it's a very complicated parsha. Uh, suffice it to say... The Gracia Mendes she was very smart, and she kept always two feet ahead of the uh, Inquisition and of the Emperor and of the Pope. And she eventually escaped with her money to Turkey, and she moved to Constantinople and lived the life of a zillionaire over there. And she was from, too. Now, she was born, I think she came from a rabbinic family, but they were all born Catholic. You know what I mean? She was born in 1510 in Portugal. Everybody was raised Catholic. Well, secretly, they had to be Jewish. She's an, she's an extraordinary individual. And when she finally escaped with her money, which nobody could believe she could pull it off, 
to Istanbul, where the Sultan welcomed her, because who would not welcome a multi-multi-millionaire who uh, has an international uh, business, a very successful international business, and now, instead of the headquarters of the international business, with agents and agencies and companies everywhere, instead of the headquarters being in Lisbon or in Antwerp, now it'll be in my country, in Istanbul. It's good for my economy. It was tremendous for their economy. And so uh, she and her nephew, whenever they were, or cousin, whatever they ran, this huge, what we would call today, multinational. She was a Yiddish Yid, and she did all kind of, um, what shall I say, Scarlet Pimpernel things to get Jews who were trapped by the Inquisition out of jail. It's unbelievable. That's a whole Pasha by itself. Now, and very classy. Oh, my goodness. Classy de la classy. You know, she had all the virtues of a Portuguese aristocrat and not the uh, vices. None of the vices. Now, so she moves to Istanbul, and now, and she's a firm woman. And the sister, who was the Yats, who told on her, and the sister was really bad news, she eventually also came because that's where the money is. And then the question was like this. So we're talking about, I don't know, I don't want to say a billion dollars because probably not, but hundreds of millions of dollars by today's standards. Hundreds of millions of dollars for sure. And the question is, who controls it? And the husbands are dead. And how do you divide it to Yerusha? And who does it go to? And so on and so forth. This became a cause celebre in the halachic world in the 1500s. Because since she was from, she came to Istanbul and Salonika, and she said like this, okay, I brought my hundreds of millions in my business. I'm asking the big rabbis, the gedolim, I told you, from woman, it's like this. You tell me how to divide this. I hold that I should control like three, three quarters of it or five, six of it. And the main reason was because when they got married, when she married her husband, they had chuppah kedushin secretly, and then they got married in a Catholic ceremony. And when they got married in a Catholic ceremony, a Portuguese ceremony, the Portuguese rules of marriage are, hear what I said? The Portuguese rules of marriage are, that if the husband dies, the wife gets everything, or 50%, something like that. Not like the Jewish system where the wife does not inherit. She go to the daughter, you know, whatever. And uh, Or in this case, since he had a brother, we go to the brother, and the brother died later. You see what I'm saying? It's like complicated. And she said that uh, what should be covey in this case is the Portuguese rules, because it was like a tanai with mominess. Now, obviously, that's her tie Otherwise, why would she have a leg to stand on? Uh, so it becomes a question of what's shot with Mominus and Dina de Malchusadina and Chubba Kedushim. It's a fascinating Shiloh. I think when I was once in Chicago, I mentioned it, and after that, the Kola there looked it up and did that for a Chosha Mishpah topic. And all I can tell you is, she was a biggie, and she submitted this to the big rabbis, and actually, they all disagreed. And uh, our hero sided with her. He said, uh, the Marstam, and the Marin Lev, and, and many others, they said, that since it's a momentous case, and tonight, Shemom Kayim, is like, Omdin and the Mokok, or something like that, she wins. Now, people say like this, well, uh, she's bankrolling your yeshiva, she's paying for your shul, all of which was true. All of which was true. So you're like, no gave it over, there's truth to that. On the other hand, this is how she and the two litigants both agreed to submit to these basins, and they all found for her. No, not all found for her. Rove of the Sephardic Gedolim, and I'm talk, I repeat, everybody I'm speaking about now is an A-class scholar, not a B-class scholar. Rove of the Sephardic Gedolim sided with her. But you know who 
sided with the sister, even though her sister was a uh, yutz and a half and a bad person, and she'll blow all the money in five minutes. Rabbi Yosekaro, in Tzfaz, he said, the heck with the Gaisha stuff, we go strictly by the din, I don't care what tonight was already, the Catholic stuff counts for zero, what is it, the halacha is garnished, this is like our cause, this is terrible, and, this, and the sister wins. And so it was a huge fight, and they wrote back and forth to each other, so you see the same child presented in different ways, fascinating ways, in the Shubas of Marsham, and Shubas Marilev, the Shubas of Avkas Rochel of the Machaber, the Shubas of Amabit, who also was in Tzfas together with the Machaber, and in general, it pitted, not for the only time, many times, uh, fights between, I'm talking about halachic fights, between the Marsham on the one hand and Riesekar on the other. Right? And usually they're on the opposite side of things, which is fascinating. And some historians suggested it's possible that we'll never know that one of the reasons for the opposition between the two and the antagonism even between the two. Now they were respectful of each other, especially Marshall was respectful of Yosekar, but he said, What are you always interfering in my bailiwick for? Uh, there were times where Yosekar backed these rabbinical candidates that the Marshall said is not qualified to be in this community. Or, or got fired, you know, Sakara sided with him, he said, what are you stepping on, on, on Salonika turf, you know? Uh, listen to this. These two men were, uh, not, uh, Sakara was born in 1488, and our hero was born in 1506, so he's about 20 years older. But they lived most of their life in, in the same time. But Rabbi Yosef Karo was a Talmud and a follower of Marie Beirav, Yaakov Beirav, and he was enthusiastic supporter of the revival of the Smicha, the Sanhedrin. In fact, Yosef Kara is one of the people who got the Smicha from uh, Marie Beirav. You understand? And so he thought to bring back a Sanhedrin was a great idea. Our hero was a Talmud, loyal Talmud of the Marlbach, who was the Barplukta of Marie Beirav. I hope I haven't confused you. Who was the strong opponent of the revival of the Smicha. So basically, you know, this guy, his Rebbe was, was Trump, and the other guy's Rebbe was Biden, you understand? So in other words, they, they come from a very antagonistic uh, set of uh, Mesoras, and it, it kind of played itself out many times, uh, even though it's never explicit there. But, you know, I, like I said before, I've seen historians make this point, and I think there's some truth to it. Uh, because many times they are disagreeing on, on the nature of it. And this is one of the famous ones, the inheritance of Gracia Mendes. You know, which way do you go, and how much uh, do you give to the, uh, the Portuguese law, okay? And I repeat, the one who was arguing in favor of the Portuguese law, she was the from one. She was the hero. She was the one who was Meister Nefesh. She was the one who rescued many, many Jews from the clutches of the church and Inquisition. She was the one who, when she came to Turkey with all her money, she set up Big yeshivas, uh, the Marie Ben Leif, who was the colleague of our hero, had a terrible life in Salonika because the Sephardish Balabatim included some that were very uh, arrogant. And uh, I told you before, you had a lot of Chosha Mishpah cases. And everybody knows when you lose a Chosha Mishpah case, it can drive you up the wall. You know, you know what Abish had said long ago, and I'm sure he's not the first one. He said, Isn't it a funny thing? This is Yonas Abish. He said, Isn't it a funny thing? A person, this is what he writes in the, the Yaris Rush. He says, somebody goes to the rabbi, so I guess, 
have a whole uh, bar mitzvah wedding. Uh, we, we made all the food, and now something tray fell in, or milchig and fleshik. And he brings it to the rabbi, and he says, bummer, it's not 60 to 1. You got to throw it all out. And the person eats it, you know, he says, okay, I'm in, uh, that's the wrong word. The person is macabre. You understand? He said, okay. If you tell me it's treif, it's treif, I'm throwing it out. And he doesn't have tarumas. But the same two people, two two litigants come before you and they're arguing over 10 bucks. And you find in favor of Ruben. Shimon is going to hate you. We'll never get over it. And the point of the other was, it's not you lost the money. You can't stand that the other guy won. <laughs> it's a human nature. So you had this and all these Choshim Mishpah cases. And the Mariban Lev, other, unlike our hero, apparently made enemies, and they murdered his son, and they beat him up, and they ruined his life. And I think another son drowned or something. So he had a terrible situation. He was in major depression. And this Gracia Mendes heard about it, and she says, come to Istanbul where I live, and I'll build you a whole yeshiva over here, and you start life over again, and that's what he did. So she was at Sadekis, you understand? But... Uh, but maybe the law is on the other side, like Rabbi Yisrael said. So these are just fascinating pieces. The other one involving Gracia Mendes had to do with Ancona. I think last week I mentioned Morpurgo, Shimshon Morpurgo, the Italian rabbi who was the MD, who was Rabbi Ancona. He was there in the 1700s, but in the 1500s there was a famous, disgusting episode where the Pope turned on a dime. Ancona was this port city. It's not like Salonica, but it was one of those cities with a lot of Jews and a lot of trade going back and forth, which belonged to the Papal States, to the Pope's kingdom. And whereas the earlier Popes had allowed Portuguese Jews, who had been Muranos, to return back to Judaism and operate as businessmen in the port city of Ancona, in other words, don't ask, don't tell, the new Pope, Paul IV, uh, uh, turned on a dime and he arrested all these Jews who had been allowed to be there with full rishos, and he burned them at the stake. And uh, our her- heroine, Gracia Mendes, was so angry, so peeled at the Pope. And she said, we got to kick this guy in the teeth. Because she was a tough individual. She's a remarkable person. And she said to the Jews in the Balkans, in Salonika, in Istanbul, and those places, let's put a boycott on the Pope. No trade with Ancona. We'll move the trade to another city in Italy and stick it to the Pope in the pocketbook, kick him where it really counts. And then he'll back off, because that's the only language these guys understand. That's what she said. And uh, this is called the Ancona boycott issue, which became a cause celebre, I think in the 1550s, if I remember correctly. And the question was, is this a good idea or not? And once again, every rabbi weighed in. Now, she put a lot of pressure on the people. Like, what kind of a Jew are you? Uh... Mayor Kahana, every Jew get 22. Well, you can't get a 22 in the 1500s, but at least show your economic uh, power. And others disagreed. They say you get the Pope too angry, he'll take it on the other Jews in his state. Uh, it's a very complicated issue. And Marshall was one of the major players over there. By the way, the way it really appears in the Marshall and some of these other Jews is in a strictly kosher Mishwet type of context. Uh, imagine, I'm trying to show you that there are real-life Choshim Mishpat spinoffs from all these cases. He, he was a Portuguese Jewish merchant from Ancona, and he now uh, owes money face or something like that to uh, a merchant in uh, Salonica, which is everyday business. And then he's burned at the stake, and now what? Or there's uh, merchandise on the boat, 
uh, or now landing in Salonica, like who's the owner, who owes what. Or they had a complicated case, I remember, in the Mari Lev, where it was a guy and a two Jews, Reuben, Shimon, and a guy. And the guy was owed money, but the guy owed money. And so he told the first Jew, uh, the money you owe me, pay to the other Jew. And then the other Jew was burned to the stake suddenly by the Pope. You see what I'm saying? All these kind of crazy cases. And the Choshimishpah question was, is this like the coronavirus? What do they call it? Not a Shatva Nahar, a Makas of Medina or something like that, or, or, or Dina de Malchusa, because the Pope confiscated all the goods of these Portuguese Jews that he burned. Is that called Dina Malchusa? Or like the Marashtam said, it's not Dina Malchusa, it's Dina de Gazlanusa, because the Pope said, Shmo, and, you know, when, when he, it was an anti-Semitic, you can't call it Dina Malchusa, and the other said, yes, you can. This is how these things played out. So he was a major um, player in the uh, halachic controversy of the Ancona boycott, which in the end didn't happen, right? No, she, unless you get all the Jews to agree, it won't go through. It's a long story. It was a guy, Sonsino, who, who, who blocked it. Anyway, uh, then you had some of these famous, there were notorious Gittin fights in the 1500s. These are things nobody has heard of. The Tamari Venturoso <laughs> get, uh, where, you know, two richy riches in Italy, uh, Tamari, her, her, her father was a big doctor, and a poor, maybe the doctor of the Pope or something like that, and the guy was from an old rich family, and then they had some kind, but, you know, marriage is economic thing, so he, he promised the son-in-law someone so much money, then he didn't come through, and the son-in-law would not give a get. It's a, it's a rare case of what you find now, a lot of times where the husband's a shmuel just simply won't give the wife a get. And um, the local base and say, you have to do it. They put him in cherem. But, you know, he went to an Italian goto provinciale who said, you don't have to give the get. And everybody waited in the marshdown was uh, on the girl's side and put the guy in cherem until he gives a get. If I remember correctly, I think 20 years went by before the girl got a get. It was a very ugly case. It's called the Tamari Venturoso get uh, scandal. Uh, again, everybody's writing chubas back and forth on these kind of issues. Uh, it's fascinating stuff, but I'm just trying to tell you, if it's a big Shiloh, one of the people is going to be the rabbi in Salonika, is the Marshtam. There are many, many others. Uh, now, as I said before, uh, his personality, in all these cases, is not a screaming, it's very calm, and very logical, uh, as I said before, he had this, a kind of this literish approach to things. Uh, there's no Nister that I know of in his stuff. It's actually funny, um, because I took the trouble to look up in my theology and the responsa, and there is a interesting question. This is a, this is actually funny. You know, the, the Masilsi Sharm is all based on that Brisa, right? And what does it say in the Brisa? A leads to B, B leads to C. And so forth. Let me pull out the fish. I'm here. Let me see. It's uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. The Gemara in, in uh, Abu Dhabi. One minute. Is it the Silky Charm? The Connor Pinkles Benyoyer, Torah Mavil de Zahiris, Zahiris maybe de Zerizis. And then comes uh, Nikias, and then comes Precious, and then Tahara, and then Chasidis, and then Anova, and then Yerushchait. And then Kedusha, and then Ruch HaKodesh, and Ruch HaKodesh brings it to Chiesa Mason. So Homer Seals Yisharm, as you know, is constructed around that. But they asked, so somebody asked the, the Rashtam, 
who's a straightforward halacha guy, and he said, you know, what's shot in all that? Uh, let me find this here. Hold, give me one second. Uh, here we go. I'll, I'll read you this paragraph. You save me the trouble doing it in Hebrew. Marshtam explains the stages as follows. Uh, Torah, the knowledge of Torah enables a man to see which acts are sinful. He will avoid these, and therefore he'll be uh, in, in, encouraged in the habit of Zahiras. This will lead to special care, to Zerizas in avoiding sin, and then that'll lead to avoidance of sin, that'll be Nikias, and cleanness. And Nikias will lead to avoidance even that of which is not sinful, but dubious. For example, eating the meat of an animal, which has been declared fit by a Chacham, but only after uh, some deliberation. That will be called uh, precious. And that will lead to Tahara, special purity indeed. For example, food is eaten only when a man is in a state of ritual purity through immersion. That will lead to uh, Kedush, I guess. Um, uh, to saintliness, that's Chasidus, which means a person will abstain even from permitted food, eating only enough to keep body and soul together. He'll leave an ascetic life, avoiding luxuries. That'll lead to anova, since the ascetic who looks in the world as worthless will never retaliate against those who insult or seek to deprive him of worldly goods or pleasure. And that'll lead to your schet. Such a person, high though his spiritual degree can be, cannot avoid the fear for all that that he may sin, and so he'll be especially scrupulous. He'll have your schet. And that'll lead to kedusha. At this stage, the person attains to complete separation from Om Hase, thinks only of holy thoughts and has no other occupation except uh, learning Torah. When it's said that this leads to Tchiesa Mason, it means maybe it'll be literally resurrection, like Elisha. Or, he says, I think it means uh, uh, different, that um, he'll be able to engage in Kiruv. No, so make, he'll make unfrom people from the wicked, who he can revive spiritually by setting the example of holy living. In other words, there are some people you can be makarv only by you walking the walk. And that's the meaning of that. That's such a glot, plain way of doing it. It's almost funny to juxtapose that together with the Mesilis Shamba. wrote a whole treatise on that. But that's who he was. So, I think you get the idea that we're dealing with somebody of a certain type. And as I said before, this was the golden age of the Sephardic Dome. They really ruled the roost. I mean, there was a lot of Ashkenaz stuff going in Poland. There was. But the Sparta, you know, like had this whole Ottoman Turkish Empire and other areas in the Mediterranean. And um, I think even the, the uh, Spartic Basins had more control over Khashem Mishpah things than was the case with the Ashkenaz ones in Poland, even though they had it there. But in Poland, it was, it was trickier. And so uh, you end up with just a very interesting person. Okay? Uh, not dramatic in the ordinary sense of the word. But uh, dramatic in the in the historical significance, uh, at least in my opinion, and for years the Marshdam when when at the last year of his life he like published something and then his son republished it in a better format, and that's always called the Shalos and Shubas Marshdam. I tell you again, it's almost a thousand Shubas, and uh, used to be out in, in bad print, and the first edition was t- supposed to be horrible, and then the second edition was better, and then they published one in the eighteen hundreds in Poland. That's the one that I had and you had, if you, if you know what I'm talking about, that was around. It's not the easiest thing in the world to read. I mean, you can, you know. It wasn't, wasn't uh, uh, appealing to somebody like myself. Certainly didn't have the kudos. But in the last couple of years, the Zichronarn people put out the full business, four volumes, beautiful, in regular block print with nice notes, nice notes, 
of the Shalos Matzah Marshtam. It opened up a world. In my opinion, it's like the it's like the uh, what am I thinking of the Minchas Chinuch before and after the Black uh, Book, you know, before the Mekhan uh, Yushalayim. It just opened up a world, and it's a lot more fun to read. And I tell you again, you would have a lot of fun, uh, depending on who you are, uh, just reading the Shilas. Especially you have an Ezra and the Chosim Mishpat. Boy, oh boy, Devin Ezra, you got your share of scandals there. Because he's a big poster, he runs in everything. Now, the people who are behind this project said uh, that there's four volumes, and there's going to be a fifth volume. And I actually was looking for this yesterday when this thought came into my mind, and they didn't do it yet. The fifth volume was supposed to be like a, a full biography with the latest stuff, and uh, these wonderful maftechos, and detailed accounts of these scandals that were involved, like the Tamari Venturusa get, and there were other getting also of this uh, sort that are, you know, there's, one could give a, if I wanted to, I just don't have the time, you know, i got to make a living, uh, you could, you know, you could, you could do a series on famous halachic scandals, uh, meaning uh, controversial getting and things like that, chalitzas, whatever, that have popped up from time to time, and everybody writes on them. I mean, all the gedolim of that era went at each other. And, uh, you know, this is a part of the Torah culture. Um, the, the, the mikvah of Ravigo, I mean, it's a whole, a whole bunch of cases. Now, uh, and our here was a, said he didn't come out with this fifth volume yet. So, I don't know who you are, how, how would I know? If you're interested in what I said today, you can probably go online and, and buy this book for cheap from this uh, Rabbi Goodblatt. And it's an old-fashioned English, and it's an old-fashioned way of doing it, but it's it's not bad, especially for somebody who doesn't have the skill to go through all the shalos and shuvas. And I think if I think myself, you find it fascinating if you're a Jewish history person and you want to learn about a gadol shabagadolim, who whose reputation rises and falls with his published thousand shuvas or so almost, and uh, the, the reputation has always risen. All the poskim after him always go to the mashdam because he has all the cases, and especially we're looking for a cool and I don't mean this in a bad way. I mean in a serious way. In every Ebenezer situation, every Koshimish situation, he's seen it all because the life was frenzied and you had such a, 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 a energetic economic life and marriage and divorce things going on all the time that his Bazin, they saw everything. You know what I'm And by the time he was 20 years in, in, in practice, 50, you know, he'd seen everything. And again, nobody ever accused him of t- taking any money. So, you know, he had a, a stellar reputation. People turned to him because they say, you're the real thing. People come from other communities and say, we have a rabbi, but we want you. You know, Sam, because the whole world is looking for an honest man. When it comes to Basin, some have better reputations, some have other reputations. His Basin always had a, t- a top reputation. In fact, even the guy, even the Turkish government knew that. You understand? Uh, that when, when Salonika had a fire and they had, like I said before, they didn't know about public health. If there would be corona at that time, everybody would be dead. And they didn't know about fire prevention. And so the town burned down a bunch of times, and all the shuls burned down a bunch of times. People dropped dead all the time from Magafas. This is life yesterday. But I'll tell you again, what do you expect when you uh, throw all your waste <laughs> on your front lawn or in the alley next to your house? And everybody does it. I can't even imagine what life could have been like at that time. It's to, you know, to a modern person where you live with toilets, it is unbelievable. This is how. Our ancestors operated. So, Salonika was a great place, but a terrible place. But from the Marsh Tom's point of view, uh, he made it to a big place. When his Matseva, which was recently rediscovered, 
he said, he, um, let me let me phrase it this way. In his Shalos and Shuvas, he always tells people, don't give me all these names, you know, Godol Ador, Rash Kavahag, Nahara, you know, or Agola. He's a cut the baloney, you know, because I'm not into that stuff. This is, you know, that was his nature to be a very practical and not a self-aggrandizing person and cut the, and the baloney. And on his Matseva, on his tombstone, he wrote the instructions. It just say, Shmuel de Medina died this year. Shalom Rav that's a that's a classy tombstone, right? Shalom Rav That's a very classy tombstone. Other people, you see, oh, here lies this famous rabbi. He's a long poem, and he wrote this safer and this safer and that that All right, I get it. You know, that's a different way. He wasn't built that way. You know, what I'm saying the the kind of things that motivate others don't seem to motivate him. Now, I wish we knew more about his personality than what I've described today, uh, which you can only get from his published chubas. I mean, he has some drushes. I've never seen them. They're in the Hebrew books, and wasn't interested in looking at them. I don't think this is a drusha guy. I said, you know, this is a halacha guy. This is a gemar guy, which is a different personality. And um, as I say before, now that the set is out there, been recently republished, anybody's interested, it's actually very fascinating. I mean, you could take it to shul, and people think you're a lambda or something like that. Just, and just read the Shilas. Uh, I think you'll have a lot of fun. Anyway, with that, I bid you a good day. And again, I'm going to repeat what they told me, that you should go to the YouTube channel and press the subscribe button, and that will somehow help things. Uh, but anyway, I hope we'll get a sponsor for the Parsha. Uh, anyway, that's it for today for Wednesday. Bye-bye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.